revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. This month, Naked Oceans is all about the science of tracking sharks. How do we follow them? Where do they go in the oceans? And what do they get up to when we're not watching? We'll find out how DNA offers a powerful tool in helping tackle the rampant trade in shark fins and how scientists got inspiration from the stars to help track the biggest fish as they cruise through the oceans. And we won't just be sticking to sharks, but meeting some of their close relatives as well. We'll be out and about on the North Norfolk coast, beachcombing for signs of elasmobranch life beneath the waves. Oh my goodness, look at this. There's, there's a whole box full of them. Fantastic. We'll tell you more about what we found later on in the show. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello. Also this month, scientists think that they may have pinned down why wriggling barnacle larvae don't stick to boat hulls, and we'll hear about an amazing salp discovery that sheds light on the important role these jelly-filled drifters play in locking carbon dioxide away in the deep ocean. And we'll be asking another marine expert to choose our critter of the month. They've been around for probably more than 400 million years. That's more than twice as long as dinosaurs on average. That was Boris Worm from the University of Dalhousie in Canada. Keep listening to find out if he was a marine critter, which one he would be and why. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com oceans. Let's get things started with a bit of news from the underwater world. And for as long as there have been man-made boats and ships, there have been marine hitchhikers that have grabbed a ride, sticking onto hulls and causing trouble by increasing drag. Barnacles are the biggest problem, and now scientists have uncovered the gene that stops them from settling on surfaces, painted with a potential new anti-fouling agent that's being trialled in the EU, a veterinary sedative called metatomidine. When free-swimming barnacle larvae encounter metatomidine, it makes them hyperactive, kicking their legs and wriggling about so they don't settle down and turn into adults. When they swim away, the effect reverses, so the larvae happily move off and settle somewhere else. Well, a research team led by Anders Blomberg from the University of Gothenburg have identified the gene responsible for barnacles sensing and responding to the chemical. In the past, the main anti-fouling chemical was tributyltin, or TBT, But in 2008, it was banned worldwide because of its persistent toxic effects on marine ecosystems and possibly people as well. So the search has been on for a suitable alternative and metatomidine was thought to be it. But lab studies published earlier this year by Anna Lenquist, also at the University of Gothenburg, identified possible ecological impacts this new anti-fouling agent might also be having, including causing fish to lose their dark skin pigments, reducing their camouflage against predators, and it also seems to affect their livers. While it's unclear just whether or not metatomidine will leach into the marine environment in significant quantities to have any impacts, this does suggest we need to tread really carefully. But hopefully, by understanding the molecular pathway that keeps barnacles at bay, should lead towards highly selective treatments that only affect those unwanted hitchhikers while leaving the rest of the marine world well alone. Because barnacles are pretty pretty cool animals. I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily realise that they're crustaceans. So they're closely related to crabs and prawns and lobsters and all sorts of things. And also, interestingly, and perhaps a little, you know, naughty fact here, they have the longest penis of any animal in in the world, I think, of any, of any creature. They have the, the longest penis, which is interesting and also a little bit naughty. Um, but we're going to move to another group now, the salps. 
And though they may look rather like unexciting little bags of jelly, salps may be the most efficient filter feeders in the ocean, according to a study just out in the journal PNAS. Salps are a sort of tunicate, a group of animals that also includes things called sea squirts, and they're actually surprisingly evolutionarily related to vertebrates. Salps are filter feeders, a few centimetres long, and they're either solitary or they can live in chains that can be hundreds of salps long. Up until now, scientists thought that although they were very efficient at filter feeding, using a mucus net-type structure, they could only catch food that was larger than the holes of a net. Fairly sensible assumption to make if you think about things like fishing nets and sieves. But Kelly Sutherland and her colleagues used lab experiments where they introduced specifically sized polystyrene balls of half to three micrometers in diameter to the salps to show that even the smallest particles were picked up at a higher rate than expected. So this means that the salps can eat a huge range of sizes of food. In the words of one of the paper's authors, it's a bit like being able to eat everything from the size of a mouse to the size of a horse. And this is really beneficial as it can allow the salps to survive on a wide range of different phytoplankton and zooplankton and other particles, which means that they're more efficient and can survive in more places than other animals that are more restricted to smaller or particularly larger sizes. Another really interesting suggestion made by the authors is that the salps could be contributing more than expected to the takedown of carbon. Because they take tiny, tiny particles in and then combine them into much larger faecal pellets, that allows carbon to be taken out of the top layer of the seawater and sink down to the ocean floor, locking it away. So efficient and important for the environment. Again, proof that you shouldn't judge an animal just by its looks. Absolutely. I've, I've seen salps sometimes when I've been scuba diving and they, they really are very beautiful animals when you get up close. But definitely something you don't want to be seeing when you're out scuba diving are plastic bags. Um, but there was, in fact, some good news for the oceans with the announcement that American Samoa, a group of Pacific islands, will ban the use of all plastic bags next year. It's a bold step and it's been made at a local level in various countries, including the town of Modbury in the UK, Fort McMurray in Canada and the American American city San Francisco and various countries and corporations including China have tried to stop shops from handing out free plastic bags and making people pay for them instead. Well plastics have only been around for a few decades so the scary truth is that at the moment we actually don't really know how long it takes for them to break down once they've been thrown away. But what we do know is that plastic bags are a major source of pollution in the oceans. Sea turtles mistake them for jellyfish and eat them choking themselves in the process and they can entangle all sorts of other marine life and even if they do break down into smaller pieces they can leach nasty chemicals into the environment. So there's no doubt at all that making and throwing away fewer plastic bags has to be a positive step for the oceans. So well done, American Samoa. It was just a bit of a shame that the state of California in the US voted against taking the same ban this month. You can find out more information about that story and all the others on this month's show at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're looking at the science of tracking sharks. Working out where sharks move and how they use the oceans is vital for efforts to help protect them from the many problems they face today. One of the biggest and most urgent threats to sharks around the world is overfishing to make shark fin soup, a luxury in many parts of the world. To find out how genetic studies are helping to monitor the trade and crack down on illegal activities, I spoke to Mahmoud Shivji, director of the Save Our Seas Shark Research Centre and the Guy Harvey Research Institute at Nova Southeast 
Princeton University in Florida. We have some really good quantitative estimates now that tens of millions of sharks are being killed a year to supply the global shark fin trade. And in fact, that it could be as many as 73 million sharks a year. And that's a staggering number. No one is keeping track of which species and what number of each species are being killed worldwide to supply this trade. The best way currently to get a handle on this information is to actually monitor fin markets. How do you go from taking a, a dismembered dried shark fin to developing a genetic tool that's going to help us identify which species it came from? In, in a way, it's somewhat analogous, although I must add really not identical, to DNA methods that are used in, in human crime cases. The way we do this is that over the past decade or so, we've established an extensive uh, reference database of DNA markers for 80 different shark species. We established this by collecting tissue samples with the help of, of colleagues around the world from wild sharks in the field as well as from sharks that were landed in, in fishing ports. And now that we have this database of what are really, you know, species-specific DNA markers, it's become really quite simple. It's just a matter of getting the fin or the meat from the market, analyzing the DNA, and then matching up the DNA from these body parts to the reference database to identify which species that body part or that fin came from. What sort of shark species have you been working with and, and what, what sort of things have your studies been showing us? The global fin trade consists of mostly around 50 shark species. And, you know, some species are more common than others. As an example, you know, we did a market study with uh, Shelley Clark at Imperial College in, in the UK and showed that fins from blue sharks, short fin maker sharks, silky sharks and hammerhead sharks are the most common in the trade. But surprisingly, we also found fins from white sharks and from basking sharks, and, and both these species are, have small populations worldwide. It turns out that sharks are not the only lateral ranks whose fins are valued in the fin trade. Uh, in fact, there is another group called sawfishes. Sawfishes are a type of ray. They're related to sharks. You know, sawfishes are, are those uh, rays that have a long nose, if you will, or a rostrum that has uh, teeth on it. Sawfish populations worldwide have declined dramatically to a point where all currently six described species uh, and urgently need to be protected from fishing. And as a result, all known sawfish species are now listed on CITES, with uh, five actually listed on CITES Appendix 1. And what that means is that international trade in these species is actually now illegal for countries that are signatories to CITES, which is most countries. I take it that there is still sawfish trade going on if your genetic studies are showing them up in trade? The most highly valued of all fins in the market are actually from sawfishes. I mean, some sawfish species have really large fins and as a result because of fishing overfishing for the fin trade as well as sort of habitat destruction sawfishes have really taken the brunt of uh, overexploitation and their populations have declined tremendously now the problem is once you have a detached fin it becomes difficult to tell whether it's from a sawfish or whether it's from you know a legal to harvest shark so what we've done is develop a quick genetics test that can distinguish fins from sawfishes from fins of other sharks and rays it's sort of a generic test it says that fin is from a sawfish and not from a shark or any other type of ray. The sort of beauty in this test is the fact that it's really, really quick and therefore can be used practically.
You've also been using genetics to pin down exactly what parts of the oceans they come from. Could you tell us a bit more about that? What we did was that we actually looked at stock structure of scalp hammerheads in the north and southwestern Atlantic, and we were able to find a clear genetic signature that would distinguish scalp hammerheads from the northwest Atlantic versus the, the Caribbean versus the southwest Atlantic. We then went to the fin trade. We first identified fins as being derived from scalp hammerheads. We then asked whether some of those fins were coming from the Western Atlantic, and we were able to match them up. And the reason that's important is because, first of all, it's sort of a proof of concept that you can actually not only tell what species the fin came from, but what part of the world that fin came from. And it turns out that in, in the Western Atlantic, scalp hammerheads are severely overfished. Uh, in fact, their populations have really crashed. And so the fact that we found fins from overfished populations in the fin trade tells you that, that there's a direct pathway, a direct channel from the Western Atlantic to uh, Asian markets. And therefore, some more attention needs to be paid in the Western Atlantic to protect these stocks. Because your lab is also working on physically tracking sharks um, with various types of tag. How is that helping to build up a picture of, of where sharks move and, and how they use the oceans? There's a critical need for information on uh, migratory pathways of sharks and, and where sharks give birth and, and where they mate. One of the best ways to obtain that information is by tracking sharks, by putting satellite tags that will allow you know, fine-scale tracking of, of sharks over long periods of time. What we're hoping to get at is defined, first of all, if there are specific patterns or migratory corridors, if you will, that sharks, individual species are moving along at, at certain times of the year. That's number one. Number two is to see whether females are ending up in places where they give birth. Number three is to see whether uh, both males and females are ending up in certain areas of the world at certain times where they're mating. If we can find these, these places, define these corridors and find these popping and mating places, then those places can be protected in terms of fishing to make sure that these very sensitive demographic populations are not being fished. That was Professor Mahmoud Shivji from the Save Our Seas Shark Research Centre and the Guy Harvey Research Institute giving us the lowdown on how genetic tools are transforming the way we can monitor the trade in shark fins. Shortly after we spoke, Mahmoud was heading off to Bermuda, lucky thing, where he has been making some amazing findings tagging tiger sharks. So hopefully we can catch up on his research later on in the series. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Cost-Perry. Now this month we're talking about the science of tracking sharks, but we're also dropping in on some of their relatives. Skates and rays are closely related to sharks. They have the same sort of cartilaginous skeleton, but they look like they've been squashed flat. They're found around the world, including around the coast of the UK, and they face many of the same threats as sharks. They're slow-growing, long-lived species that tend to take a long time to reach maturity, so they can be hit really hard by overfishing. But compared to sharks, the plight of skates and rays is less well known. We headed out to Hun Stanton on the North Norfolk coast here in the UK to catch up with a project that transforms beachcombers into research assistants to help track where skates and rays live. Sonia, tell us, what are we looking for today? Today we're going to go down to the beach and we're going to look for mermaid purses. Um, they resemble big black giant um, ravioli cases. Um, and basically they're the egg cases of skates found um, living in the uh, UK's water. 
really. So that's what we're doing today. And uh, we just look around on the beach. Is there anywhere particular that's good to look for these these things? Uh, best place to look for egg cases is basically on a strand line, um, the highest point where the tides have deposit all the seaweed and debris um, from the uh, ocean. Um, against the base of the uh, cliff at Hanstanton and against the base of the uh, seawall. That sounds fantastic. Let's go and see what we can find. Have you guys found anything? What have you got? That definitely looks like an egg case to me. Where did yeah. you find it? At the top of the beach? or Yeah, at the top, near the wall. And I found lots of mussels for tea tonight. <laughs> Excellent. So you've got your dinner as well. <laughs> Are they easy to find, the no. egg cases? Do you have, where, where's the best place to look for them, do you think? Um, near the edge in the seaweed. In the seaweed. Excellent. So I haven't found any yet. I'm not very good at this. Oh my goodness, look at this. There's, there's a whole box full of them. Fantastic. Who found, did you find these? Yeah, I found a fossil. And a fossil. This is fantastic. What a great trove, treasure trove. So you must have, there must be about 30 in there. Well done, Keep up the well good done, work. Boys. Keep going. So has today been a success? Did you find what you were looking for, Sonia? Yes, today's definitely been a success. Uh, we've had um, quite a few uh, mermaids purse, um, brought back and um, with two separate families we managed to identify uh, one definite spotted ray mermaid's purse and one definite thornback um, ray mermaid's purse. So we're very happy. I've now got to go back home and try and identify all the others and then send them back to Shark Trust. But no, it's been a very, very successful day. Everyone we met at Hunstanton seemed to be having an absolute blast looking for egg cases, especially the proud discoverers of that huge stash. To find out a bit more about the driving force behind the great egg case hunt, Helen went and caught up with John Richardson from the Shark Trust. Well, the prime reason behind it is to really raise the profile of skates and rays in the UK. Out of a lot of the marine species that are do have issues facing them in terms of conservation. They probably get the least press of all. Um, people know very little about them. And the Great Egg Case Hunt is a really good chance for the Shark Trust and everyone who takes part in it to um, just to raise their profile in the public eye, get people thinking about them and the issues facing them. What kind of issues are these species facing? Overfishing tends to be the problem. Um, they don't have a very high pro- uh, reproductive rate and when you get uh, bottom trawlers and other commercial fishing operations in there, it's... Um, if we're not careful and we don't have a, a sufficient amount of research on these populations, it'd be very easy to, to wipe out regional populations or to certainly make a real dent in their, in their numbers to the point where they struggle to reproduce. What are you finding with this data and how, how do you hope, like ideally, that this will actually help protect these species? Uh, we're still piecing it together. I mean, we do have over 17,000 uh, individual records, so we've got a lot of data. We're still working with uh, government organisations such as CFAS, which is more of a fishery science um, group. Um, when we start identifying areas where skates and rays are perhaps breeding, where there's nursery areas that are really important to um, future populations of these of these species, um, once we can identify these, perhaps we can look at um, getting some protection in there, some perhaps from fishing, from recreational angling. Um, we can stop, or we can try and stop um, aggregate mining and dumping of dredge spoil. All these things that really do have impacts on on skate and ray populations. And this isn't just in the UK, is it? But um, you're collecting egg case sightings from other countries too. Um, can we find these egg cases all over the world? Absolutely. There's, um, I think, off the top of my head, there's about 600 species of skate and ray throughout the world. So there's egg cases washing up all over the place. We, we get a few. We've had um, egg cases from Angola, South Africa, um, 
France, Ireland, even Argentina, the US. So there's, there's air cases out there everywhere. It's just a matter of getting your eye in and looking for them. You were also asking people to report sightings of air cases from not just the coastline, but, but also in the underwater realm as well. How are scuba divers helping to build a picture of these species? They are kind of the next step in the graded case hunt. Beach hunts are always going to be important, but um, again, we're looking to really verify what we're finding. And when divers are down there, if they see egg cases, uh, live egg cases, which are what we call in situ, where they're actually attached to, to the seafloor with a, a juvenile skate array in them, then we know for a fact that that could well be a, a nursery ground, um, an air-going ground in a really, really important area to protect for these species. That was John Richardson from the Shark Trust. If you want to get involved with the great egg case hunt yourself and do your bit to help protect these little-known species, then check out their website, greateggcasehunt.org.uk, and we'll put the links to that on our website. There you'll be able to find information on how to identify egg cases and how to report your findings to the Shark Trust. You can send in photographs or even post the empty egg cases to the Shark Trust in the mail, all perfectly legal, apparently. Well, from some of the smaller elasmobranchs to the undisputed emperors of the fish world, whale sharks are the biggest fish in the oceans, but they still pose a great challenge to scientists who want to track them and find out more about their elusive lives. I caught up with Brad Norman from the Ecocean Project in Australia to chat about his novel approach to tracking whale sharks. Brad, you introduced me to my first whale shark in Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia more than 10 years ago. And since then, you've developed a revolutionary method for tracking whale sharks based on photographs of their white lines and spots. And you got inspiration from the stars. Could you tell us a bit more about what it is that you do and how it works? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm glad you're uh, equally excited about whale sharks as I am because I've been working on them since about 1995 and um, they're a beautiful creature and one that's threatened so we needed to learn more about them. One of the initial um, studies that I sort of undertook was trying to identify the individuals uh, and work out how many whale sharks are at Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia and if the same ones come back and if in fact they're moving other places because so little was known about them. They've got spots on their skin. Um, sometimes you can identify the animals through these, uh, through these natural markings. So I proceeded to take tens, hundreds, thousands of photographs and uh, work out by eye which individual sharks were which and whether you know, we got matches. That became a little bit uh, onerous or a little bit problematical uh, when you get thousands of photos. I was very, very fortunate to, um, to link up with um, a couple of colleagues, um, Jason Holmberg, who's a software engineer, and a good friend of his, who's now a good friend of mine, uh, who's a NASA astrophysicist. And um, Zarvan works on identifying um, star patterns in the night sky using a particular algorithm. And, and we sort of bounced around ideas and came up with the idea that we might be able to use an adaptation of this algorithm that the Hubble Space Telescope scientists used to identify patterns in the night sky or stars in the night sky, we might be able to adapt that to basically identify individual sharks. It's sort of like a bit of fingerprint technology, really, and um, it's worked brilliantly. And we've got um, many, many whale sharks in the library, and, uh, and many of the ones uh, we can prove are coming back to Ningaloo Reef and other parts of the world using this system. Presumably, you have to be able to get around problems, like if you've taken the photograph from, say, different angles, uh, maybe in different light conditions and so on. The, the software, the way, the way the system works, basically, it, um, it deals with the angles between triangles of spots in an area behind the gills. Now, that's great if you're uh, side onto the animal at 90 degrees and those triangles, the hundreds of triangles that the program will draw um, of the pattern of spots, that will work perfectly. But when you're not at 90 degrees to the side of the animal and when you're sort of taking a photo from behind or in front or below or above, 
those angles get a bit um, screwed because of your angle to the shark. So we've actually come up um, with some, uh, well, not me, it's um, a gentleman named Seth Ladigo, who's a, another programmer. He's come up with a system where we use um, 3D modelling. of. Um, we take a photograph, put that photograph on a virtual 3D model of a whale shark. We then move the whale shark to be at 90 degrees and then we unwrap the photograph again and what will happen is the angles will be as they would have been if you took the photo at 90 degrees. So it allows us to actually use those photographs that might not normally have been able to be used. And it's working really well. Um, do we know if um, those patterns change during the lifetime of an individual whale shark or, or do they really stay the same from when they're quite young to when they're, they're much older? Bearing in mind that when the whale shark is born, they're very small, you know, they're only half a metre in length. They can get up to, you know, believed to be up to 20 metres. So this is the beauty of the triangle system that we use. Although the animal will grow, the angles between the triangles that are drawn between all these spots, they'll sort of move equally as well so that we don't see any, any change in the angles between the spot pattern over a period of time. Wonderful. And, and what sort of things are you finding out um, from these tracking studies? What are we learning about the lives of whale sharks? This system is, is helping us to uh, monitor the, uh, the numbers of whale sharks that are coming to various locations. We started at Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia, but the Eco Ocean Library has now expanded to receive photographs of uh, whale sharks in 45 different countries now. So it's actually giving us a global monitoring program for these species. Now, the long-term study that we've started at Ningaloo has shown that many of the same whale sharks are coming back every year, which is a great sign. Uh, lots of new ones as well, which is really positive because um, it is regarded as vulnerable to extinction. Their numbers have been declining dramatically over the years. What we've done in Australia is, is show that um, ecotourism can actually be an economic as well as ecologically sustainable alternative to the once only value of killing a whale shark for fins. A really important part of the Ecocean project, it seems, is um, drafting in the help of members of the public. And anyone lucky enough to spot a whale shark in the wild and catch it on camera can send pictures into the Ecocean Photo Library. Have you got any tips for taking useful photographs? The simple part, the simple thing to know is just preferably be side on to the animal. The area we mainly are dealing with is uh, for photo identification is the area behind the gills and just above the pectoral fin. You know, as a scientist, myself and my colleagues can only be in one place one day of the year. But you can have thousands, and we are getting thousands, of ecotourists that are becoming our research assistants. Their input is a really major part of our, uh, of our global monitoring program, and, and we really appreciate it. Well, we're all deeply envious of Brad, who gets to spend so much time with the wonderful whale sharks. And Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia really is a very special place indeed. That was Brad Norman from the Ecocean Project telling us about how the stars are helping him track the biggest fish in the oceans. If you want to become a whale shark spotter and send in any photos you have of whale sharks, then you'll find all the links you need to the Ecocean Project on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Now it's time once again for a marine expert to pick our Critter of the Month. So let's find out who we've got this time and which species they'd like to be. My name is Boris Worm. I'm a marine biologist working out of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. And the species I would like to choose is the tiger shark. It's a, a particular large shark, up to 7 metres in length. I find all sharks incredibly interesting and cool, and I'm also concerned about them because a lot of the large sharks seem to be declining very rapidly throughout the ocean. Maybe one-third of all sharks tend to be threatened by extinction, and uh, this is mostly due to the effects of fishing. 
sharks are have survived for a very long time in the oceans. They've been around for probably more than 400 million years. That's more than twice as long as dinosaurs on average. And they tend to play an important role in the ecosystem. Tiger sharks, for example, live uh, worldwide in the tropics and in the subtropics. And uh, it has been shown that whenever they show up in an ecosystem, for example, in Shark Bay in Western Australia, they tend to rearrange the distribution of other animals. Dolphins, dugongs, sea turtles, even seabirds do different things when a tiger shark is around. And the net result of that is that those species are feeding in different locations, and this has ripple effects throughout the ecosystems. For example, sea turtles, which the tiger shark can prey on because it has very powerful jaws, tend to not graze as much on the interior of seagrass meadows, and thereby those meadows can regenerate from the grazing pressure of those large grazers, much like wolves change the distribution of deer and other grazing animals on land. So the tiger shark is just an incredibly interesting and wild animal, and I'm concerned for it because it is declining throughout much of its range. Fantastic stuff. Tiger sharks really are incredible beasts and they certainly have much more to fear from us than we do from them. Well, that's it for Naked Oceans this month. It just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Mahmoud Shivji, Sonia Revely, Brad Norman, John Richardson and Boris Worm. Next time we'll be bringing you a special episode of Naked Oceans celebrating the release of a landmark report from the Census of Marine Life Project. It's been 10 years in the making with teams of researchers across the globe venturing out to uncover the diversity, distribution and abundance of life in the oceans. So definitely not something to be missed. Until then, do get in touch with any questions or just to say hello. We're on Twitter at Naked Oceans or you can email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com and you'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.